Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. And we are recording. Bill, I see that fan going behind you. Tell me that your air conditioner is definitely working and not on the fritz still. Oh no, thank God. I, I went a week I went a week without air conditioning. It was it was horrible. It makes you really appreciate it when when it comes back on. It's odd though. You, your body kind of adjusts to to the heat. I never had air conditioning growing up, so I mean it was, you know, but it's nice to have it at night when you're trying to sleep. Did you have shoes growing up? Did you have shoes to go to school in? We had shoes, but we had to we had to we had to trade off. My brother and I. He wore them one day. I wore them the next day, um, and it was it was uphill both ways. I'm all about the cold in the bedroom at night. You can hang meat in our bedroom, and you can see your breath. Yeah, I'm I'm all about that. And then getting under the covers. We call it the meat locker. We also have a fan, like an industrial strength fan, blowing at all times. So hey, everybody, how's everybody doing on this lovely Friday? Good. Glad the heat broke a little bit. I've said this, and I, I could be completely off my rocker, but I smell fall in the air. I already do. Now, maybe it's just wishful thinking, because I really love fall, but I just pick up little touches of fall in the air. It might just be because it's not 95. I mean, we had a couple of days of rain, so maybe that kind of soaks some stuff and changes. So um, interestingly enough, 25 years ago, I don't know if you all remember where you were this week, but I remember where I was because ironically, um, I had not yet moved out here to the east end of Long Island, but my husband and I were in the process of making that move. And we were out here for the weekend trying to find a rental home. And we were down by the college looking at a house on Far Pond Lane, and I could see the billows of smoke coming up from the Pine Barrens because that was 25 years ago was when we had the massive Pine Barrens fire. And oddly enough, even though I was coming from the city, we were able to get out here because we had been up in Connecticut and came over by the ferries and didn't know anything about the fires. For thousands of other people trying to get out here from the city that weekend, it just didn't happen. Uh, yesterday, it was more fighting off uh, Montauk Highway. Uh, the fire, if we could uh, show you a map, actually began uh, just south of the uh, Riverhead area. If you uh, see uh, that the red line is the uh, expressway, if you can see the expressway right around exit 71 there, kind of in the center of your screen, just south of that in the Riverhead area is where uh, the fire began. Uh, that was on uh, Thursday afternoon. So this week, as California is, of course, burning fires all over the state, we're looking at the 25th anniversary of the Pine Barrens fire out here, which was probably the biggest fire that we have in any sort of living memory. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And with us today, we have uh, Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Joseph Shaw. Hi, Joe. How you doing, Annette? I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor. And joining us today is the lovely Michelle Trowering, who wrote a huge story about this Pine Barrens anniversary. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Annette. My name is Michelle Trowering, and I am a features writer with the Express News Group. Features writer extraordinaire, we need to say. <laughs> oh, Joe, you flatterer. 
Oh, <laughs> and my name is Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. Interestingly enough, none of us lived out here at the time. I was probably, at this point, the only one that was even kind of out here. But it was really a weird introduction yeah, for me. Track of time here, Thursday afternoon, and it began to move uh, south uh, very quickly, uh, moving down, uh, hopping over uh, Sunrise Highway. You see Route 27 there. Uh, for a time, that was uh, the big uh, battleground, whether or not it would reach Sunrise. It not only reached Sunrise, it hopped over it with uh, relative ease, started making its way down uh, to the road farthest to the south, Montauk Highway 27A. And that's where uh, yesterday uh, the battle lines were really drawn because that is the heavy populated areas of West I just wondered, Beach. And, Michelle, what did you learn about this giant and fire? And, and I wasn't even sure how it started. Do we, did they even really know? They don't. Um, it is officially listed as undetermined, but it's widely believed that it was a flicked lit cigarette that started it. That's kind of the rumor, which is infuriating because it caused so much damage. It seems like it's one of those events that people still talk about as in, hey, where were you when dot, dot, dot. That was what was most surprising to me, considering it's been 25 years. So how many acres did it burn? So when we first started reporting this, um, even at what was then the Press News Group, the Hampton Chronicle, um, we reported about 6,000 acres, but more recent numbers reduced that to about 3,200 acres, interestingly. That's still a lot. Uh, yeah, it's about six square miles. Um, the original figure was about 12 square miles. That's huge. I guess what's funny is like that seems that's pretty tiny compared to the fires they get out there, like in Colorado, where you are, Michelle, and out in um, California, right? Right. I mean, it was interesting writing this story against kind of the backdrop that I have right now in Colorado. We have four fires burning right now. One of them is the second largest fire that the state has ever seen. And we're at 175,000 acres, which is almost 280 square miles. So I'm looking at photos of the fires that are happening here while writing this 25 year anniversary story. And it really kind of put everything into perspective for me, big time. And you know, the number of acres here was in a much more condensed small area though too, of the island. I mean, the island's only so many miles wide. So I think it was such a big chunk of our surroundings was burning. The photographs from that, and I, I arrived, I think uh, a couple of years after the wildfire. And I know it was still a topic of conversation when I first moved here. And you spoke with Tim Laube, uh, Tim Motes, and Chris Franciscani, who uh, did the reporting for the Hampton Chronicle News. And the photographs, I mean, to think about a wall of flames 200 feet high is is just mind-blowing. And, and uh, some of that was captured in some of the photos we were able to pull out of our archives. And it's like the fire actually jumped the Sunrise Highway, which is insane when you consider that that's a divided four-lane highway that's pretty wide open, right? Exactly. And that's also where they had set up their staging area. So everyone was there for this. Like even the reporters, probably. I believe so. Uh, Chris was on the front lines. He actually got smuggled in a Brentwood fire department truck. Um, he kind of sweet-talked his way onto there, and they brought him right up to the front. And he was sort of running up and down Sunrise Highway, talking to as many firefighters as he could. But he said that you know, this adrenaline was so palpable, and all the firefighters were just ready. They were ready to go into battle together. Um, and then it jumped. 
despite them soaking the other side of the highway to prevent that exact thing from happening. It just crossed all of those lanes. You had that one incredible quote from the firefighter who had said, you know, in the back of his mind, he knew that the road wouldn't burn. So when he saw the flames coming, he just got down and as close to the, as, as close to the road as he could, knowing that the, you know, that the fire would jump over him and, and thank God that it did. It jumped over the firefighters and a lot of fire trucks burned, right? I mean, they just melted. The brush trucks that went into the fire itself, a lot of them, yeah, a lot of them got stuck in the woods. They're woods, you know, there's not a lot of roads back there. So they maneuvered as best they could, but a lot of crews had to abandon ship and run or get rescued by another brush truck. You know, the thing that, that struck me too about your story, you know, we forget that the volunteer and volunteer firefighters. I think that's something to emphasize that these guys are all volunteers and they risk their lives all the time when they're fighting fires. But this was a really potentially life-threatening situation that they faced and, and a terrifying one. And I think you really captured that, but I think those guys remember that for that reason. Isn't that, isn't that fair to say? That's the sense that I got. Absolutely. And volunteer really is the key word. There was nothing making them be there. They were there voluntarily because they wanted to put this out and they wanted to do it together. If you can give us a status report on the fire at this very moment. Okay, well, at this point, the uh, fire is well on its way to uh, being, uh, being contained. It's not contained yet, although as we speak, it may well have been. Uh, the uh, fixed wing uh, biplanes are, are dropping water. Uh, there's two big Chinook helicopters. The governor, I saw one uh, dipping the, the bucket into uh, uh, Wildwood Lake, uh, putting out fires, and it really looks good. The smoke is not blowing sideways. What smoke there is is coming straight up, which means the wind is down and uh, the humidity is up in the evening. And it, they're getting Toward the end, there were some out-of-state fire companies that came to respond. Um, there were a there are 174 fire departments total that responded, as well as New York City Fire Department, and this marked the first time that they had ever traveled to Suffolk County um, to help with mutual aid. And this fire was, I, I think you said in the story, this was the worst fire in New York State in something like 80 years, right? Right. And it hasn't been beat wildfire. The wildfire hasn't been beat since 1908. I guess it was a, a really dry year then, huh? It was. It was literally the perfect storm for this to happen. We hadn't had rain in 19 days um, it was extremely low humidity, and there was also this buildup of fuel on the forest floor, which includes things like dead leaves and twigs and branches and vegetation that if you have a controlled burn plan or a prescribed fire uh, plan, um, this doesn't happen as often in theory. It kind of burns up that fuel and keeps things level. But since there had been this buildup, coupled with the really uh, hot weather, the low humidity, and winds of about 30 miles per hour, this thing just took off. They hadn't really been doing prescribed burns in there then before that. They hadn't. They were mostly contained to grassland areas and uh, carried out by the DEC primarily. So that is something that they are now trying to reintroduce into the area to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again.
I think it's interesting and important to note too that the pine trees in the Pine Barrens are kind of built for fire. It's only through high temperatures that they release their seeds and perpetuate the the species of trees. So it's kind of set up so that fires will kind of succeed and, and, and all that. And I think that's what the prescribed fires do now as well. They get rid of that underbrush, but they help the trees to survive and, and to get rid of, um, you know, the, the seeds and, and to do what, what they're here uh, to welcome do. Welcome back, everybody. 16 minutes after the hour. Uh, let's uh, see if Dick Amber is still on the line. Your title and is it the Pine Barren Society? That's right. I'm uh, the executive, executive director, director of the Pine Barren Society. We're looking at it from an environmental standpoint. Right. Perhaps we can shed just a little bit of light. Obviously, the uh, officials are being very prudent in not trying to call this one way or the other. But let us tell you that from an environmental standpoint, this is clearly a very unnatural fire. This is a man-made fire. We cannot say that it was deliberately set any more than local officials can. But this is not the sort of Pine Barrens fire we're used to. As you've been correctly pointing out, the Pine Barrens is a fire-dependent ecosystem. It has burned almost annually in small quantities for the past 10,000 years. Yeah, that's, that's part of the You know what's really interesting is um, as about a month after the fires, my husband and I did indeed move out here and did indeed rent a house um, by the college there, which was then Long Island University. And because I didn't know what to do with myself out here and I didn't yet work at any of the newspapers, I took a field biology class at Long Island University and um, we would do all these field trips to these different ecosystems out here. And our professor took us to the Pine Barrens probably a month or so after that fire and we could already see the green shoots coming up. So the seedlings were already popping up probably in late September, early October of that year, which is pretty fascinating when you think about, you know, how blighted that whole area was. You know, there's the effect on the Pine Barrens was one thing, but a lot of the firefighters and a lot of the observers talked about there was real concern about West Hampton and uh, some of the other areas that the fire might spread into those areas. There was a lot of concern. Yeah, they, all of their attempted stands were exactly that. They were just attempted. Uh, they weren't really able to stop the fire. Um, and it got very, very close to a neighborhood. Former Air Force housing there across the street from Kapraski Airport. It's called Hampton West Estates. And there's hundreds of homes in there. Um, and there was a point when it got very close and the firefighters basically set up a wall between the fire and the neighborhood. And there was only one fire hydrant in there and it was corroded. So, it, I mean, the neighborhood is from World War II and they hadn't updated it. So they, the pumpers went in there and they drafted water from swimming pools from everywhere they could find just to soak the trees. And one of the firefighters told me it was really just a stroke of luck that the wind changed direction and took the fire with it. And later on, um, Dean Culver, who is the chief of the West Hampton Beach Fire Department at the time, he was speaking with some guys out from California who came to advise, and they said, yeah, we would have just let those burn. We wouldn't have saved that at all. Structure 
doctors were lost in this fire. One. What was it? Do we know what I it was? I believe it was just a house. One house, no lives lost, uh, 49 firefighters hospitalized for very minor things. Other than that housing complex, there was real concern about the fire coming down Main Street in West Hampton Beach. And I mean, I lived in West Hampton Beach for a number of years. And um, for, for years, people just talked about that. People had to evacuate housing. You look back a, a couple of years ago to the fire in, in Sag Harbor, and it could have easily been the same thing in West Hampton Beach. You could have lost the entire Main Street um, and hundreds and hundreds of homes in, in the village. And just looking out and looking up and seeing the, you know, the glow and the darkness and the smoke and, and, and all that. What a, what a horrible experience. You know, one, one of the things that struck me too about your article, Michelle, I worked closely and so did Bill with Michael Pitcher, who was the editor of the Western Edition for years and years, now sadly deceased. But I can tell you that that was one of his proudest moments of how the paper handled the coverage of, of those fires. And in reading your story, the firefighters talking about their memories of it, you can tell it's almost like the way soldiers remembered war. It, it was a moment that was really compelling in their lives and, and was, was just sort of a, a touchstone for them even today. And, and I've been struck as we've shared the stories on social media, people saying, oh, wow, I've started, you know, I absolutely remember. And, and it's brought a lot of those, those kind of feelings right back to the surface. It was a terrifying moment for a lot of people. And a, and a lot of people really rose to the occasion. And I think they, they, they still talk about that today. They do. And I didn't meet any kind of resistance as far as talking to me about this. Everyone wanted to share their memories. You know, this is something that impacted them so deeply. Even our three reporters who were on the ground at the time, they were fresh out of school. They were in their early 20s. This was the first big news story they had ever covered. And for a lot of these firefighters, it was the biggest fire they had ever, ever seen. So everyone was sort of in the same boat. So it's time to welcome our newest guest, Brian Boyhan. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, folks. How are you all? He's our uh, publisher emeritus of the Sag Harbor Express is here today. And interestingly enough, Brian, we were saying of all of us, you were the only one who lived out here during the fires of 1995. Yeah. I wondered yeah. if you could talk a little bit about your memories of covering that fire and also just what the people who lived out here were thinking when they saw this wall of fire around the West Hampton area. Well, as I'm sure you've talked about, you know, it was all consuming, you know, for four days, five days, I guess. Um, it's all anybody talked about, and it really kind of impacted, uh, affected our lives out here. We were having dinner with friends last night, and uh, uh, Greg O'Halloran uh, and Marlene O'Halloran, and uh, Greg remembers taking the jitney out and just remembered the clog of traffic and the smell of the smoke coming out of the jitney, and that was probably on the expressway he smelled that. Um, and uh, the amount of effort that the community put in, I went back and kind of dug out our coverage. Uh, I remember my wife and my mother-in-law taking over our kitchen, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that they were gonna bring up to the firefighters. Uh, they got as far as Hampton Bays, I think, and were able to drop them off. The fire department ladies auxiliary, tremendous output of, uh, of sandwiches, food that they brought up, uh, water for the firemen. And uh, one of the stories I thought that was interesting is that uh, in, in 1995, the Waterside uh, restaurant and catering facility 
was in business here. And uh, there was supposed to be a big wedding there and it got canceled. I'm pretty sure it had to do with the fire itself. And it may have been a, a wedding that involved firemen and all of the food from that party was then donated and brought up to uh, the firefighters. You know, I was reading Michelle's story yesterday, which I thought was spectacular, Michelle, by the way. Oh, thank you, Brian. And uh, the description of this 200 foot uh, high wall of fire and how terrifying that must have been and uh, depicted beautifully uh, these firefighters on the highway figuring, oh, this thing's never gonna get across the highway for God's sake. It's the it's Sunrise Highway. The, the notion of the fire leaping over or the heat being so intense that spontaneous combustion occurs on the south side of the highway and sets that on fire, it, it was, it, there must have been a sense of, of hopelessness in some of the, for some of the firefighters. Uh, so it was just really tremendous. I think it's really shocking too. And you think that those pine barren trees aren't even that tall, you know? So Brian, yeah, your whole, your story in this week's paper was all about the ecology of the, of the pine barren. So yeah, let's talk about the trees in there. Yeah. I got to take a, a hike the other day with, um, uh, Sean Ziegler, who is an ecologist, uh, with the, uh, Central Pine Barrens uh, Commission. Uh, they're kind of charge of the uh, 106,000 acres. It's a it's a sprawling piece of property, and it, you know it's it's kind of modeled on the Adirondack Park. You know there are some businesses and some residences allowed. You know in the in that area, but largely it's for preserving the pine barrens and the ecology that goes along with that. And so there's the pine barrens, the pines and the pine barrens are largely uh, pitch pine. And uh, then there is the dwarf pine, which is really kind of like the star of the show. They're the same species, but the dwarf pine is, as the name would imply, much smaller than the pitch pine. And there's a couple of reasons for this, uh, they believe. Uh, One is that the, the conditions in which they live, which is this, really dry, sandy, brutal soil. We walked through there the other day, and it's amazing that anything lives there, but it does. So some people believe that the conditions define the size of the tree because of the poor ability to extract water from the uh, the soil and the not terribly nutritious soil. The trees themselves only allow themselves to get so high. The other belief is that they are genetically predisposed to survive in this kind of an environment. But as um, one of the ecologists there, uh, Polly Wigan, said, the jury is still out on why that occurs. Around these pines exist a smaller ecology. And one of the things that Sean was able to point out for me was uh, all this this small microenvironment that lives Uh, kind of around the base and surrounding the pines. And uh, it includes false heather, different types of blueberries, blackberries, huckleberries. If the pine barrens, if the trees, the forest is allowed to grow to such a degree, it can crowd out those species. And what the coalition is hoping to do is two things. Uh, One is to uh, create environments that allow all of these smaller species to exist there and not crowd them out and eliminate them. And the other thing uh, they want to do is eliminate all of the fuel, the dead wood, which there's a lot of, I can tell you, that helps contribute to uncontrollable fires like we had 25 years ago. 
Have they ever had a prescribed burn there since the 95 fire? Yes. So uh, the uh, DEC was doing uh, uh, grasslands. They were doing prescribed grassland burns up until this past March when uh, the COVID pandemic kind of set in. They also did an understory burn in 2007, I think she said, at the Sarnoff Preserve, which is right up there off of Route 24, up in uh, like North of Hampton Bays in the Riverhead area, but not much. And what they're hoping to do is bring back the element of fire in a very controlled way because the pines themselves are in fact fire dependent. In normal circumstances, if fires were allowed to burn through there on a regular natural basis, they would naturally get rid of a lot of the dead wood. And of course, the fire departments are, for good reason, for public safety, are quick to put out any of the fires that start in the Pine Barrens. But what that allows for is all of this fuel to build up. So what they'd like to do is bring in professional foresters that can begin to clear out some of the fuel and then begin a program of regular prescribed burns, starting small, three to five acres at a time, and then getting larger 10 to 15 acres. And by that way, they feel that they'll be able to maintain those small environments uh, so that the smaller species don't get crowded out and then get rid of the fuel to mitigate the possibility of a big forest fire. Another aspect of this that, that occurs to me is it's been 25 years, but in that period of time, I'm not sure we have any better way of fighting a wildfire if we were to have the Sunrise wildfires today, I suspect that the equipment and the strategies and everything else really haven't evolved much in 25 years. And it's still a real challenge to bring a fire like that under control. So my question is, it's been 25 years. Why haven't they done this already? Is it just that, you know what I mean? It just seems like given what we went through in 1995, this would already be something that's occurring rather than something they're still planning to do. So the, this program that they're developing, they only started doing this uh, about two and a half years ago. They're in the middle of a five-year program to develop this plan. So they got a million, uh, $1.25 million from the State Environmental Protection Fund through the DEC. Uh, so wheels of government move ponderously. And uh, I suspect that uh, part of the reason is that there might be a reluctance or resistance to burning fires. There's certainly a risk to it, and that may have been part of the part of the problem. I don't. I don't. I honestly don't know entirely. So, Brian, um, what kind of did you see evidence of the fire on your recent walk through the Pine Barrens? So, the trail that we walked in on was actually cut by bulldozers that went in ahead of the firefighters to give the firefighters access to the heart of the Pine Barrens and where the fire was going. We walked yeah, maybe a quarter mile up into the woods and we came to this little sandy spot and Sean said, well, this is probably a turnaround or a staging area where they would have brought the equipment in. And he pointed out, he said, on this side, pointing to the south side, because the fire apparently burned around, is where it had been burned. And on this side was not burned. And you could see subtle differences, chiefly in the size of the trees. Other than that, not much. And I was talking to Polly Wigan uh, about you know, what evidence there may have been. But Sean said, well, if you got down your hands and knees and scratch through you know, the leaves and the needles that are on the ground and in the growth, you might find an, uh, an ashier kind of a sand. 
But Polly also said that on some of these trees, you would find char marks or uh, burnt rings around their bases where the fire had burned. You know, I want to put a plug in that all of these stories, Michelle's story, Brian's story, and also Julia Hemming, our recent high school graduate from Hampton Bays High School. Uh, she's been an intern with us for two years. Uh, she did a, a lovely story interviewing her dad, who was one of the firefighters, who actually got a moment of fame because he became the guy that got interviewed and it went national. All of those stories are at 27east.com. And we also partnered with News 12 Long Island. We provided them with uh, some of our archive photos of the fire for the project they were doing. And they, in turn, have provided us with some of their video from covering the fire back then. So it's at 27east.com. You can, you can read these stories and you can also see some videos from back then. I want to put a plug in also for the firefighters. You know, you're reading Michelle's story and uh, going back and uh, looking at the coverage that the Express did and the resourcefulness of the firefighters. You know, you're talking about them breaking down a fence to get into somebody's pool. And we talked to uh, Beaver Early and Mike Macri, who was the fire chief at the time, Kevin O'Brien, longtime firefighter, and they'd never seen anything like this. And it was just sort of like, we went wherever they told us to go. And the danger and the heat, they talked about the tires popping on the fire trucks because the heat was so intense. And it was by the grace of God that that wind turned around and blew the fire back the other way because West Hampton would have been just destroyed. We talked about it earlier. I think it was really a momentous occasion for, for a lot of these guys. And, and uh, as, you, as someone said, a real source of pride uh, because... Yes, a lot of it was luck and the change of the, the wind direction and everything, but a whole lot of it was the, the firefighters' resolve to, to keep this thing from, from reaching more populated areas. And just think it was a stunning story. I think you all told it very well. I think we uh, really got a full picture of it. And as you said, Annette, coming into this, that Brian was really the only one of us who lived here at the time. Um, I came a couple of years after, and it was still a topic of conversation, and you could still see the remnants of the fire uh, along Sunrise Highway uh, when you drove. It's one of those historic moments. It was real interesting to revisit and uh, to get so many different perspectives on it. As a reader, I just really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, uh, compelling stuff. Tip it hat to you guys. Uh, you did a really great job, and Julia, too. And I have to say, a quarter of a century later, I'm really glad that I know all of you, because I didn't know any of you back then. Guys, I was seven back then. <laughs> oh, stop. Oh, Thanks, Michelle. You had to go there. I did. There. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. oh, that is... That is a splash of cold water. Oh my God, I'm so old. You've been in various locations, so why don't you tell us where you are right now? Well, actually, Nate, right now I am aboard a fire truck being driven by members of the Center Merchant Fire Department. We are driving to a location where firefighters are uh, said to be uh, looking into a report of uh, some smoldering uh, in an area not too far from a home. Uh, this is possibly one of the more serious calls tonight, and that's the fact Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. 
Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.